Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we continue to hear John Truitt and Greg Dybel discuss speaking in tongues. If you haven't listened to the previous three episodes in this series, it would be good to do that before listening to this one. Also, if you want to get the most out of this Bible-heavy discussion, you should read 1 Corinthians 14 prior to listening, and maybe also keep it open while you listen. These two go deep into the chapter to discuss this issue, and having it before you so you can refer to the verses will greatly help you to follow the discussion. Here now is episode 378, Speaking in Tongues Discussion, Part 2, with Greg Dybel and John Truitt. Back to the question that Greg asked about languages, uh, do you believe that speaking in tongues is speaking a known language on the planet? I would say it's speaking a, a human language, but not necessarily one that is still being spoken. It's an interesting question. I don't really know the answer to that. Okay. Well, it seems like you are committed that it is some sort of human language, whether it's spoken or not is, is a secondary clarification. Does that satisfy you, Greg, or did you want to push back on that? Yeah, no, I I, uh, think that the apostle, even here in Corinthians, is making the point that the tongues that were being abused were known foreign languages, supernaturally given, yes, utterances by the Spirit and inspired by the Spirit, yes. And when you say known, known to whom, Greg? Known to some particular, or spoken in some particular dialect or native-born group, uh, that that uh, language, you know, signified to them that this person was speaking, you know, my, my talk. So somebody in the audience is understanding the yes. the tongue. Yes. Okay. That's yes. what you mean by yes. known. Well, that's, I mean, that was, uh, to me, that, that was the, the model given on the day of Pentecost. They were dialects. The word is used, the dialects. How can we hear everyone in our own native tongue, our own native dialect, uh, the mighty works of God? that the miraculous languages were certainly uh, being practiced somewhere in the world at that time. There's a good argument for that even in the book of Corinthians here, where the Apostle Paul says, you know, uh, it may be that there are many, many languages in the world, and he says none of them is without signification. Uh, He says even an inanimate thing like a trumpet or a flute it sounds uh, the battle cry or it, uh, you know, sounds, it has to be discernible. And uh, the word he uses there in the Greek from memory, again, is, is easy to be understood. Uh, so that they were understood languages by somebody in the audience. So, and the interpretation is not so much for the person in the audience who understood the, you know, the miraculous unlearned language that the person's giving us the, the prophecy was giving but it was for the benefit of the others who did not belong to that linguistic group a native tongue so it seems to me even there's no evidence here in corinthians for a language that's not understood by somebody from some part in, on the earth and that to me is uh, you know fairly clear but john may have some other thing there that i'm not seeing Yeah, well, before he comes back on that, uh, I did want to read off another one of your points, just making our way through, where it says, they will know exactly what they are speaking, for they will be praying with their minds and understanding as well as their spirits. So, Greg, are you saying then that the person who's speaking the foreign language miraculously also understands Mm -hmm. what they're saying? Yes. Okay, so that's really two things for John to engage with here. One is that somebody in the audience will always be present who understands the language, and then also that the person who speaks understands what they're saying, even though they haven't learned this language. This is a a miraculous situation. What do you think, John? Uh, A few things. First of all, the the only place in the New Testament that indicates this, this notion of that people understood what in the audience understood what was being said is, is on the day of Pentecost. And Greg makes a really good point. I, I love the argument that he makes uh, about charismatics. The, the sign of their conversion is speaking in tongues. And he asks them the question, well, you know, and, and they refer back to, you know, Acts 2 uh, for that. And he says, well, did you have, 
you know, tongues of fire? And was there a sound of rushing wind? And they're like, no. And then he says, well, okay, then you didn't have the sign, right? According to your own logic, right? <laughs> That's a great argument. But I would use that same one, you know, with Greg's argument is that that was a phenomenal event. When people get born again uh, and they get converted, there's no tongues of fire. There's no rushing sound of wind. And when they speak in tongues, people don't understand what they're saying, right? That those are all phenomenal events to that initial event. After that, you never get that again. There's no place that says that people understood what they were saying. In fact, and so this is the second point that I would make about this, there is an actual place where it says that there isn't anybody that understands, at least under normal circumstance. I think there can be, again, both phenomenal events where they phenomenally understand, supernaturally understand, as well as happenstance where the person is speaking in tongues in a context where somebody does actually understand it. I have a story about that. And that's in 14.2. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. So nobody understands, right? You don't understand what you're saying. And that's the whole point throughout this whole thing of why it needs to be interpreted. Um, but then you get down into, I, I would say in terms of your mind understanding, again, your mind doesn't understand. And that's why in verse 13, therefore one who speaks in a tongue is to pray that he may interpret. In other words, you have to ask God for the interpretation because you don't know what you said. So this is another difference that I, I would typically teach and do teach. It, and it wasn't what I was originally taught is that that's what Paul says, right? Paul doesn't say that you can speak in tongues and then automatically interpret. That's not what he says. He says, you need to pray that you may interpret. And, and then, and this is really important to understand this next section is this next section is about speaking in tongues and then interpreting, right? So when he says in verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unproductive. My mind doesn't know what I'm saying. And so again, it's gotta be interpreted. Verse 15, what is the outcome then? All right, so what am I going to do then is this phrase that he says, what, what should I do? Understanding what he just said, I'm not going to understand. Nobody's going to understand. I need to pray for an interpretation. So what am I going to do? Verse 15, I will pray with the spirit, which we just saw was uh, speaking in tongues uh, a little bit earlier. Uh, verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, right? So we know that's that he's talking about that, right? So when he says, I will pray with the spirit, he's talking about speaking in tongues, but I will pray with the mind also. I like to translate this praise. I don't think he actually meant sing here. I will praise with the spirit, but I will praise with the mind also. And then verse 16 further corroborates the idea that that's what this is talking about because he says, for otherwise, if you don't do that, if you don't, when you speak in tongues, interpret, if you bless God in the spirit, how will the one who occupies the place of the outsider knowing to say the amen at you're giving a thanks since he does not understand what you're saying. So in other words, if you don't follow the speaking in tongues with the interpretation that you prayed for, nobody's going to understand what you're saying. And it's not good. It, it's not going to edify anybody. That's not how things are supposed to be done, right? An important point throughout this piece is that you get to see here Paul's instructions that the same person is supposed to interpret. In verse 13, we see the one who speaks in a tongue is to pray that he may interpret. So he's already set out and then he, and he continues on with that teaching saying, you have to interpret, you need to interpret, you need to pray and then interpret. Otherwise people aren't gonna know, they're not gonna be blessed by what you said. They're not gonna be edified. So when you get down later in the chapter, you know, verse 27 through 28, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it must be by two or the most three in each one in turn, and one is to interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he is to keep silent in the church and have him speak to himself and to God. We can go back to that previous section to understand what he's saying. That he's already said, if you're going to speak in tongues in the church, 
you need to pray that you interpret so that people will be edified. And that goes in this section as well. It's a little tricky because the word one there uh, in verse 27 throws people off, understandably so. And so in a lot of charismatic churches, not all of them, but a lot of them, they'll teach that, you know, two or three people in the church may get up and speak in tongues, but there needs to be someone else there who can interpret that, who can say what they're saying, right? But we already know what Paul is teaching on this, that the same person is supposed to pray for the interpretation. So the word one here is, it's the, it's the Greek word haste. And um, one of its meanings is aloneness or only, right? Onlyness, or the, there's a good example of it in Mark when the Pharisees are, are reacting to Jesus uh, forgiving sins. And they say, who can forgive sins? But God hates. And so it's, it's, a, it's a good example of how haste can be used in this sense that, but God alone or only, they're the only one who can do that. Um, the Shema is the same usage of that, of that word. And so if you bring that particular understanding back into this, this verse, of uh, that definition of that word in here, then you can see, ah, okay. And you know, each one in turn and each the same alone is to interpret. But if nobody's going to do that, then you need to be quiet. If you're not going to do that, you need to be quiet. You can speak in tongues to yourself, but not, not allowed. So, so that's how I would flow that teaching on all of that stuff. Okay. Uh, so, Greg, what, what do you make of these arguments that John made here for uh, the, the same person not having to understand the tongues that they're speaking, mm-hmm. um, nor having others to understand it as a requirement, even though he granted that this was the case, in fact, on the day of Pentecost? Certainly. John's interpretation has the majority view behind it, and I recognize that uh, my view would be a minority report. But I certainly would argue for a few facts that perhaps need to be added into the mix uh, before coming to a conclusion about it. So the the tongue speaker, uh, when it says he is to pray uh, that he might interpret to help others or the church, it's not necessarily saying he, he's not understanding what he's saying, that his mind for himself is unfruitful. If you look through the whole of the chapter, when he's saying, look, the one who, in verse 2, where, where John started correctly, he who speaks in a language does not speak to men but to God, unless, of course, there's interpretation. No one understands him. Now, he's, in other words, he's speaking mysteries. Now, again, John would say, I think, that the mysteries here are a positive spin on what Paul's saying. Uh, I would take it, the whole context rather as being a fairly negative comment on what this person is doing. Look, he's not helping anybody. He goes on, for example, to say uh, this person is, uh, verse 9, he's speaking into the air. Okay, so these are mysteries that are disappearing. He goes on to talk about in verse 11 how he's saying, if I do this, I'll be as a foreigner. I think the NASB and the King James say is a barbarian, um, an unlearned person. So so the person who's doing this is speaking not to others, not to men, but between himself and God, not because he doesn't understand what he's praying, but precisely because others aren't benefiting. Uh, The other is not, in verse 17, uh, he's not being edified. But when he says the person who's doing this is to pray for the gift of interpretation, I think he's, he's saying not because the tongue speaker doesn't understand what he's saying to himself and to God. He's simply asking that if there's no one in, in the church who understands, then pray for the gift of interpretation that you might put that language that you're speaking in to the vernacular of those who are, you know, uh, native to that particular language. So that would be how I would take it. Uh, But I certainly understand that um, John has a a very good point in reading it the other way on the face of things, uh, unless you hold these other points in uh, in tension. It it is an incredible, no wonder there's been such huge debates and fallouts over the generations, because it is an incredibly complex subject. My only appeal, again, would be it's not just on the day of Pentecost, that is the template. As I mentioned before, there are two other occasions and the book of Acts is the church's doctrine in practice. It's the narrative, the narration of their doctrine as they applied it. 
and the, the languages there uh, in Acts 10 as well as Acts 19 were also, I think, uh, languages that were understood by the people. So tongues are primarily for the benefit, not of God. He understands all languages. He doesn't need my tongue, my particular dialect, when I pray. But if I'm, if I'm you know, wanting to help the church, then others do. So always it's to men that these tongues are in the context of being delivered. And I think that's the whole thing that the Corinthians were forgetting. They were exalting themselves, edifying themselves, puffing themselves up, not acting in love, concentrating on the least of the gifts and so on with, if it was without interpretation. And, and that's what he's trying to correct. So I think we've got to keep the whole thing in tension in order to get a, a proper reading. So I recognise that John's interpretation is very uh, makes a lot of good sense on the surface. Uh, but um, I, I think there are some other things to, to, to throw into the mix to keep it a bit in tension as well. And when you say it's to men, you mean to people, right? Men and women? Yeah. yeah uh, because yeah, you have another point here about women remaining silent where the use of tongues is concerned in the church. Mm. And uh, this is pulling on the end of chapter 14, uh, just yeah. leaving leaving to the side the question of whether or not the same person understands the tongue, and, and moving on to another point here. Now, John, what, what do you make of this section at the end here, talking about how the women are to remain silent? Are women allowed to speak in tongues? Should women speak in tongues? What do you make of this? First of all, I, I, don't, I don't think that section is talking about tongues at all. Back in verse 29, he says, have two or three prophets speak and have the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, then the first one is to keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one. So he's in the context of prophecy now. He's, he's not in the context of speaking in tongues anymore. And you can see him, uh, verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God first went out, or has it come to you only? Again, this idea of prophesying. And so I would say, first of all, that it's not in that context, so it doesn't really apply to, to speaking in tongues. It could apply to prophesying, but it doesn't really say that. Um, it would be in that context, but it doesn't say that. It just says they're not supposed to speak at all. So the other problem, and this is a you should do a whole other podcast on this, John. Um, is, <laughs> well, is, hey, I'm the one asking questions, so I might yeah. as well ask the hard ones <laughs> of somebody else. <laughs> is, there are serious problems with these two verses, right? Um, verses um, 34 and 35, that there's textual problems. They don't always appear in the same place in uh in manuscripts uh which is a good indication that's funny business is going on and you can read you can remove them like some ancient manuscripts don't have them in that place and the text flows perfectly from verse 33 uh, to verse 36. the other problem is especially in in their context of prophesying it contradicts something paul said a few chapters earlier and greg you know points that out so I, I actually don't think that these are original to the text. I think these are these were added at some point. Greg, did you want to comment on this issue or no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly, uh, endorse all that John has said, and certainly I think that these this test number eight is a particular test which should which should only be applied to the particular circumstances in the church at Corinth, and not necessarily applied as a blanket you know, ruling on, on the practice of all other churches where women weren't doing this. So I think that the test number eight here is in the context of the charismatic abuses, particularly at Corinth. Now, John also has correctly pointed out that it, it can't be what it seems to say, because earlier the apostle has said that you may all prophesy, and if a woman is to do it, she's to do it with an appropriate, you know, sort of outward Chapter address. 11. Yeah, chapter 11 and so on. For those who think that Paul is misogynistic, they need to just go back a couple of verses earlier here where Paul gives men also the command to be silent. So he's not picking the women out necessarily. He's saying to the men uh, who were speaking either without interpretation or who were talking out of turn and talking over each other, uh, that they also were to be silent. And to, uh, that's why he says, you know, there's to be one or two or at the most three and then it's to be done in order, that is consecutively, uh, without talking across each other. So I, I think that test number eight, and perhaps I should have expressed this a little bit better in my article, is unique to the church at Corinth okay. and is not necessarily 
to be applied across to all churches. And okay. I, I, I got that from your article that that's what oh, good. Thinking. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's, it's just when you see the list, it's it, you want to just go through the list and, and compare it to today. So, uh, yeah, that's probably clarified John, in the article. But uh, John, can, can I make a, a, a comment about this, this section that I think is really important? This isn't this is necessarily to do with Greg's test. But let me just say this, that uh, I think this is this is something that the charismatic Pentecostal church has not understood and overlooked that is a huge problem and absolutely should be in anyone who's going to practice the gifts and especially the gift of prophecy, they need to understand this, that when he's in uh, verses 29, 30, and uh, well, in 32, he's teaching on discerning spirits, not so much prophecy, a little bit, um, but it's mostly about discerning spirits. So if you go back into 12, he's going through this list and You've got prophecy followed by discerning of spirits. The word discerning is diacrino, and uh, it you know means to judge between two things. And and then the word spirit is super flexible in the New Testament, right? Lots and lots and lots of different ways that the word spirit can be used. One of the ways it can be used is a a word meaning prophetic utterances, right? And so you see that in First John uh, four, for instance, you know. Brothers, you know, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world, right? So discerning of spirits, and uh, Gordon Fee has a really good entry on this in his uh, commentary, uh, where he explains what what this is actually saying, uh, is the idea that what you're doing with discerning of spirits is you are judging whether or not this is actually from God, right? Supernaturally. God is giving you the revelation. Is this actually from him or not? Now that would certainly apply to prophecy, but it could apply to other things as well, right? Well, does it apply to tongues, you think? Could, certainly could. Do you believe that speaking in tongues can be faked? I, I think it can, but it's actually kind of difficult to do that. Um, you, you, you probably would have to practice a lot to actually sound like you're speaking a language. And you would also recognize that speaking in tongues can be mimicked or produced by unclean spirits? Oh, yeah, definitely. In either of those two cases, which Greg also brought up in a previous conversation, whether it's psychological or demonic, you would need discerning of spirits in those cases. Yeah. What Paul's doing here in 14, in this section, 29 through uh, 30, really 33, really, but, um, uh, but certainly through 32, is he's teaching on discerning of spirits that he's saying if you back up to, to verse 29 have two or three prophets speak and have the others pass judgment that's your word crino right so in other words you're supposed to have some other people around who are listening to the spirit of god in them and they're praying and they're asking is this from you they're passing judgment right spiritually passing judgment discerning of spirits right and so what that then does, then if you go on, if a revelation is made to another who is seated, then the first one is to keep silent. What sort of revelation? We just said passing, they're supposed to be passing judgment. In other words, if the three of us are sitting around in fellowship and I'm, I'm prophesying and Sean, you're sitting there and you're discerning of spirits, right? You're listening to the Lord to see, is this really from you, Lord? And the Lord tells you, that's not from me. Right. Or gives you some correction to what I said. Right. Uh -huh. Then you need to speak up. I need to be have humility and stop and say, ah, OK, and be in a accountable relationship with other brothers and sisters. New Testament ministry is absolutely supposed to be team ministry. It's not the prophet who comes along and and says, here's what the Lord says. No, it's team. And we see that here. Right. For. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted and or you could you could translate that really and or yet the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets uh, if i'm doing that i am subject to you 
in that discerning of spirits way where you're judging in the spirit, is this really from God? And I need to place myself in subjection to the other believers that are with me so that, and here it is, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace so that we may have peace. I, in ministries that I've been involved with, I have seen where prophecy without discerning of spirits and without that kind of humility and subjection where prophets get elevated and everybody, you know, and no one would question them and, you know, that kind of stuff, they're not discerning of spirits that confusion reigns and, and people are hurt. And so that teaching, I think for the charismatic church, certainly charismatic biblical Unitarians is vitally important so that this stuff doesn't become dangerous to people. Okay. Uh, Greg, did you want to add anything to that, or did you agree with uh, his take on that? Yeah, that's very, very good pastoral advice. Uh, I, I think a classic example is uh, in the States where you've had uh, all of these uh, alleged prophets who've uh, predicted uh, president's return, and uh, now I've got serious egg on their faces, done irreparable damage to the church and uh, to, the, to the scriptures and to our Lord, and uh, they need to eat some humble pie and acknowledge uh, that they've been misled. And the church should have been doing its job earlier and would have avoided a whole host of issues. So terrific advice, uh, John. Absolutely agree with that. Okay, then let's uh, move towards, John, would you, would you agree that any Christian who is a true Christian, another one, or in other words, has been born again, can and should speak in tongues? I would agree with that. I, I would also say, as Paul points out, not everybody's going to, and that's certainly my experience. Not everybody's going to. Uh, here, here's what I would say about you know First Corinthians twelve. I think this is is an important thing to bring up in this this whole thing. That in verse eight, where it says, "For to one is given the word of wisdom," so on and so forth. People tend to interpret the word "one" there as the the number one, and that's not that word. That, that would be the Greek word haste, and that, that's hosts. That's the relative pronoun, like which or whoever or whom. Um, and, and so as a pronoun, it has an antecedent uh, in which it, it agrees both grammatically and in context. Um, so in other words, you've got a relative pronoun. You don't have the number one. Uh, it's not that everybody gets one of these things. It's a relative pronoun. The, the, the antecedent that it's in agreement with is the, the word that underlies in verse seven, the words each one. So that's its antecedent. It agrees with it both grammatically and in the sentence structure, because you can see, but to each one is given. And then in the pronoun in verse eight, when it repeats, it's for pronoun referring back to it is given, right? So you see both from the, the grammatical agreement of number and gender and in the way that you have a repetition of the verb that follows it, you get, okay, that's its, that's its antecedent that's in agreement with. Well, with pronouns, you can put the antecedent noun in place of the pronoun. Uh, so Jeff married Sally, she is a journalist. Well, we know that that's referring to Sally because of the gender, um, but you can also repeat that and say, Jeff married Sally, Sally is a journalist, and you said the exact same thing. So if you do that in this verse, you, if you supply the antecedent uh, for the pronoun, you get, but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good, for to each one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, so on and so forth, right? So all nine of these things are given to every believer. They're just different ways in which the spirit manifests. The important key then, because what I was originally taught was, therefore, everybody has full control over these things. They used to have this phrase for it, all nine, all the time, right? Where I could just do any of these things whenever I wanted to. And that should have been obvious nonsense to anybody after about 10 minutes. Uh, in verse 11, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills, right? So in other words... You can't just do these things because you decide to, you know, you, God has to empower you to do these things and it's going to be according to his will. So you're, you know, if you're going to do a miracle, you can't decide to do a miracle. I can't walk up to somebody in a wheelchair and decide, oh, I'm going to heal that person. They're going to get out of the wheelchair. If God has not empowered me to do that, then it will not happen. Mm -hmm. So speaking in tongues is in a little bit of a funny category because I believe the same thing about speaking in tongues. God has to empower you to do it. But as you go through and you, you study 
What is it? When you're speaking in tongues, in, in a general sense, what is it that you're saying? It's prayer and praise, right? And, and all the way through, you can see that. It's prayer and praise over and over again. That's what it is. Whatever it is that you're saying, it's either going to be in the category of prayer or in the category of praise. So what do we know about God's will about prayer, especially, but certainly praise as well, that it's always his will. You know, I want you to pray continuously, right? So I believe that it's God's heart to empower that particular one all the time. So it feels like I can speak in tongues at will. That's not really what's happening. It's just that, you know, if I'm going to pray in a tongue that God's will He's always wanting us to pray. So he's certainly going to empower me to do that. So that's how I would, I would teach that. But I think it's, it's really important to understand. It's not that I am in control of any of those things uh, in terms of the ability to do it. I'm in control in the sense that I have to, like Peter, get out of the boat and walk on the water. Jesus empowered him to do it, but he actually had to step out of the boat and walk on the water. Mm -hmm. So I, that's that's what I would say to that. Sean. Let, let me uh, just clarify on the grammatical point, and then pass it over to Greg, and because I'm sure he's he's got uh, some thoughts on this as well. The grammatical point you were making at First Corinthians twelve eight is that the first word there, translated to one or to whom, is uh, standing in for to each from verse seven, but then in the next clause there it says to another. And that is pretty clearly to another, not to the same one. And then in verse 9, you have a different word. So the, the word in verse 8 in the middle there is alos, which means just means other or another. And then it's the word eteros, or heteros, if you want to use the Erasmian pronunciation, in verse 9. So I'm just curious, have you, have you wrestled with... Uh, those two other two words in, in your study of yeah, this, or is that not are, something that factors in for you? Those are actually a categorical device. Uh, so alos essentially has a sense of another of the same kind. Heteros has the sense of uh, another of a different kind. And it, it the two are fairly interchangeable on normal basis. But in this particular case where you've got a device uh, at work, where they're being used in conjunction with each other to categorize these things, where you have the first two are in a category, the next five are in a category, and then the last two are in a category. Right, but that, and, that's not really my question. My question is about substituting in each one for all of these different... No, you wouldn't do that. That's what okay. I'm saying, is that they're not functioning the same way that first uh, pronoun uh, is working. They're functioning to categorize uh, into three different categories these nine different things. Right. So um, I'm sorry to put you on the hot seat here. <laughs> it's yeah. not really my job. It's supposed to be Greg's job. But you, you had said that in verse eight, instead of saying for to one, you could say for to each one is given the word of wisdom. And then in the second half, and to another, the word of knowledge. So the same, the, the person who gets the wisdom is not the same as the person who gets the knowledge here as we're reading this. And it seemed like you were saying the opposite of that. No, no. Okay. So if you, if you read it with this sense, this categorical sense, backing up to verse eight, four to one is given. That's repeating the each one is given in verse seven. Uh, the word of wisdom through the spirit. And to another, now it's a different word. It's not the pronoun referring back to it again. Right, right. It's this categorical word, another of the same kind. So you've got a uh, word of wisdom and another of the same kind word of knowledge. And you can see that the relationship there, they, Oh yeah. Okay. Those two things kind of go together. But then the next one after word of knowledge, um, verse nine to another that's heteros. That's not all So now you've got another of a different kind to another of different kind faith by the same spirit to another of the same kind gifts of healing to another of the same kind, uh, effects of miracles and so on and so forth. So you're getting this categorization in that, and that's the function of those as opposed to the relative pronoun, which is referring back to this antecedent in the previous verse. All right, Greg, uh, I appreciate your patience. We've been going on for a bit here. 
So uh, I had asked John the question, do you believe that all people can and should speak in tongues? He affirmed that and, and explained some nuance on that. And if I asked you that question, you would say no and no. Is that correct? It, well, actually, no, you would add the nuance that it is possible if it's a, a missionary context. For in evangelism and to in, men, yes. Yes. Uh, now, it was a very nuanced argument there about the, to the one and, uh, you know, the, uh, the relative pronoun and so on. I think the answer, if you again read on, is very clear when you get to the end of that particular chapter. Uh, God has appointed each in the church. Okay, now he gives the, the apostles first, second the prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps administrations, variety of tongues. Now, the question here, are all apostles? Answer, no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Clearly not. There's only a certain number of pastors in the church. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have the gifts of healings? The answer continues is no. Do all speak with tongues? The answer, no. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, uh, you're going to have, uh, as Paul says, they're all trying to do it. It's chaotic. If you go back to what he'd said in the beginning of the chapter, uh, when this used to happen in the, in, in the, the pagan days, when they were carried away to dumb idols, to mute idols by this spirit, uh, when everybody is, is uh, you know, wanting the same thing and to compete and to be, uh, you know, showing how, um, uh, you know, gifted they are. The answer is a clear no, not in the New Testament church, not all spoke in tongues. And certainly, uh, you know, I think that's, that's the common sense approach. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I listened with great interest on, on that point. Uh, so is tongue speaking for today? Look, again, as Paul says, it's the least of the gifts. It's been way overblown. And on occasion, it still may be very relevant, uh, as I mentioned to you in a, in a few specific uh, and necessary cases. But essentially, I think the Corinthian church was a unique situation, which is not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, repeated today. My under understanding is that the, the tongues were a sign gift primarily for unbelieving Israel of, of judgment to come. The Old Testament agrees with that. And I think Paul, uh, you know, endorsed that particular approach. Now, what, how, what is that? I guess you ask now, well, well, how do I approach people like John, for example, who, whose church would do that? And yeah, so yeah, that's a good, that's yeah. a good question. I should have asked that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, be... there are some folks who believe that if you speak in tongues, that you're doing something satanic and they want to yeah. shut it down. And yeah. uh, there's, there's yeah. really no tolerance whatsoever. I'm, I'm sure we can yes. all think of a few people that would say that this is just evil. It's of the devil and you mm -hmm. shouldn't do it. How do you yeah, interact well, with charismatic yeah. types? You know, obviously yeah. honest-hearted ones, not weirdos that are no, no. worshiping the devil on the weekend or something. I can assure you, John's not yeah. doing that. It, it, no, no. I, I look. I can. Uh, I can tell that's that's true. Uh, look, there are really only three possibilities, aren't there? Number one, it's hypnotic. It's of the flesh. It's a psychological phenomenon, and I think a lot of the the Pentecostal tongues fit that category. Once you add group pressure, positive teaching, expectation, hours and hours of coaching, it's very obvious that a lot of people, I think, are able to enter into this experience, as indeed other religious groups and even non-Christian groups uh, you know, have, have uh, demonstrated. The second possibility, of course, is that it can be demonic. And in my experience, there have been many tongues that are demonic. You know, and John is very, very good on, on, you know, and he started off at the very beginning of the session by saying, in my experience, this is, this is the case. Now, in my experience, I have found a lot of tongues to be deceptively demonic. Uh, I can't put it in any other sort of less than, than a straightforward way. Uh, a lot of those tongues were people who have not truly either been converted or who have not truly repented specifically of, of sins from their, a satanic background or, you know, involvement in uh, Ouija boards and uh, fortune telling and all of that sort of thing, palm reading and all of that spiritualism. Uh, a lot of tongues have come from, from unrepented areas in that as well. The third possibility, of course, is they are of the Spirit of God. And if they are of the Spirit of God, then they will follow the patterns that the Apostle lays out here 
to, to, to guarantee true spirituality. Uh, in my experience, uh, very, very few have fit that category. In fact, I was trying to think this morning because I thought it would come up today. How many in the hundreds of cases that I've personally been involved with in the testing of the spirits uh, have been genuine? I can say I know of definitely one, maybe two. Uh, so very, very, very rare in my experience. Now, my experience isn't the be all and end all. It's not my experience isn't, uh, you know, uh, speaking um, infallibility, but that's just my experience. And so I, I do certainly, you know, give a clear warning and caution that it's, it's uh, as in the scriptures, it's a very, it's not for everybody and it's very, very rare. The deception comes in, of course, and this is why I have difficulties with the whole idea that uh, he who speaks in an unknown tongue is speaking to himself. If I'm speaking to myself, I've got to know what I'm saying. And if I don't, then I'm following a, a, a very um, deceptive uh, path of meditation uh, practice where I eliminate my mind. I uh, put my mind in a box by itself and don't engage it. And to me, that is uh, opening up a whole category of possible deception. Uh, whenever I lose control, as John said before, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets and should be subject to not only others, but to myself, because I have to shut myself up if someone else comes in over the top and says, look, uh, this is how I see it. So there is a very clear scriptural mandate that we must engage our minds in our prayers, in our meditations. And uh, as soon as we disregard the uh, mind that God has given us at these points, which we've been, we've been using our minds through the whole two hours here. Very good. <laughs> uh, I hope we have. And uh, to disregard that is a doorway to deception. And the devil loves nothing more than for people to shut their mind off and to enter the back door in that way. So I, I'm sorry to end on a fairly somber note, but, but certainly I would see that the modern phenomenon in those three categories, I just would, uh, you know, give a, a note of real caution to the whole thing. Uh, I don't want to take that away what is genuine. And I, I hear John very clearly, and I endorse and agree with him on this point. We want everything that God wants us to have. If God wants me to speak to a person in the wheelchair, rise and they can jump and leap and praise God, wonderful. If he wants me to walk on the water, wonderful. But I've got to have a clear, a, a clear direction on that. Uh, and uh, otherwise, um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, not only possibly deceiving myself, but uh, causing hurt to others. And much hurt has been done to the body of Christ through a failure to listen to the repeated warnings in scriptures that we are to test, to prove all things, Hold fast to that, which is good. Yeah, uh, I mean, the Lord Jesus himself is our example. Every word is to be weighed, mm -hmm. to be honestly looked at, proceeds from the mouth of God, and that's our authority. So even my, what I'm saying has to be subjected to the authority of God's word. And wherever I speak out of turn, I stand to be corrected, and I hum would humbly uh, you know, ask the Lord for a correction on that point. Okay, well, John, I can't have you respond to every one of those points, uh, or else we'll have to be here for another couple of hours. Uh, but if you could just summarize your own view. You know, uh, like I said at the beginning, I, I think, you know, Greg and I probably see eye to eye on a lot of this stuff. His experience is illustrative of my point, that there's a lot of bad teaching and a lot of bad practice and a lot of bad pastoring on this subject. Yeah. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that that's been his experience, because I think that's probably most people's experience. Um, I've known a lot of people who at one point were in charismatic churches and then they left because they were just so many bad experiences and that kind of stuff. So, I, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all. The answer to that is better teaching and better practice and following the instruction that Paul has laid down for this stuff, because he's given us really good instruction on this. People just don't either study it or follow it, or, you know, they're just going with whatever tradition or emotional thing that's, you know, it's going on, or there's demons involved, you know, all those kinds of things. So, yeah, I, I think that's, like I said, it doesn't surprise me. I don't feel like people who had a lot of bad experiences, uh, you know, so are somehow you know, wrong in their, how they're feeling about that. I think it's understandable. Um, but here's what I would say. I'd say uh, a couple of things. This is, this is my tongue in cheek test. 
are you forbidding to speak with tongues? And I would include teaching that tongues, you can't do it in that category, right? You know, we don't want to do that, right? We don't want to forbid to prophesy and to speak in tongues in this. We want to have good teaching that teaches orderliness and the proper purposes of edification uh, to the church and, you know, those kinds of things. So uh, the way I, the, you know, I always use the, the phrase, don't throw the baby out with bathwater, right? We want the bathwater thrown out and there's a heck of a lot of dirty bathwater, but we want to keep the baby, right? So we got we to gotta discern that. We have, to, we have to work to get the baby out of the bathwater so that we have the baby and we don't have the bathwater this kind of dialogue, I think, is really, really good uh, at this kind of thing, because Greg has introduced to me the idea that you can't actually speak in a, the tongue of an angel. There's something else going on with what, what he's saying there. I'm really intrigued by that. I've never heard that before, and I want to go study that. Maybe he's right about that. And I know because I've always said, you know, it could be the tongue of a, a human or a tongue of an angel. But I don't know if Greg's right on that. He may be right on that, and I want to know that. And so I think as we dialogue about these things, especially if we're really focused on, let's see what the scripture is saying. And, and throughout, and I know Greg would agree with this, we'll set tongues aside for a minute that, and just talk about the rest of the gifts of the spirit as a whole, that these things are supposed to be happening in the church. And they're supposed to be happening a lot, uh, a lot more than they do, certainly. But today we've gone kind of in the opposite direction in most of the church from the Corinthians where it's just been rejected. And I've seen that happen in charismatic churches where 20 years ago they were offering a lot of the gifts of the spirit and now they don't because things weren't handled properly and people got hurt and now they're scared of it. And instead of doing the right thing, which is study the word of God, get the right teaching, get the right practice, and you'll have a good thing instead of a bad thing. All right, guys. Well, I certainly appreciate your taking the time to have this conversation and to get a little in-depth here. Sadly, even after all this time, I feel like we've barely locked horns and really made connections on the, the disagreements here. Uh, but uh, at, least we, at least we made some progress in clarifying and seeing what the differences are. And uh, so I, I just wanted to thank both of you for your time and for your consideration on this subject today. Thanks, John. Thank you. Well, that's it for this discussion. I hope you've enjoyed it. Both gentlemen have done a great job interacting with each other. I appreciate the respectfulness with which they carried themselves and carried the other person in conversation. And I would also be curious what your thoughts are as far as which side do you think is more compelling that tongues is available today, or that the gift of tongues has ceased since the first century or early second century. If, if you would like to make your voice heard, come on to restitutio.org and find episode 378, Speaking in Tongues Discussion Part 2, and add your comment there. We've already got a number of comments in from last week, Part 1 of this conversation, for example, David James Fenton wrote in saying, I was interested in this discussion, having been through much disruption in my fellowship in my teens with the subject. A point I thought that Greg didn't answer properly was, if tongues had more than one purpose, why would it cease when only one has been completed? I would say that it would indicate that the gift had a primary purpose as a sign. The sign was carried out by the church for the secondary reasons, as they needed a reason to be giving the sign, i.e., it was edifying for them when used properly. If the primary prophesied purpose was a sign to Israel, that the Old Testament was ending, then it would end at the removal of the sacrifice in Jerusalem. The church still had other ways to edify itself. Anthony Piercy wrote in saying, Hi, Sean, been following your podcast for years and have enjoyed them. Keep up the good work. One assumption that never seems to be addressed is, why do we assume that the Apostle Paul's words on the gift of the Spirit are applicable in our time today? Indeed, since Paul is clearly addressing the Corinthian congregation in his time on this issue, one could postulate that if he meant his comments to apply for all time to all Christians, he would have said so as Jesus did. I have never seen anyone approach this topic without this assumption. 
However, I believe you achieved an interesting goal in having multiple Christians of different views talk on this topic without right fighting. It was a pleasure to listen to. Thanks again, Anthony. Interestingly, John Truitt himself replied to Anthony and said that at the end of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says that the things he writes are commandments of the Lord. And uh, I would add to that as well that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about how we have he has no other custom among all the other churches of God. In other words, he's seeing his responses to the Corinthians as normative for Christian practice, not limited to their particular locale, although he is addressing their specific issues. David Seaborn Jones wrote in saying, Thank you very much to the three of you. I am finding this series very interesting. At the end of this podcast, it sounded like the first of Greg's two questions was pretty much exactly the question that I wanted to ask. If the tongues spoken by John and his church are not a heavenly prayer language, what are they? Are they an unlearned foreign language, like Mongolian, Basque, or German, say for someone who hasn't learned it? Amid his explanations to overcome the baggage of Pentecostals, I didn't get the impression that John really answered this question, at least not in such a way that I am clear as to the answer. And uh, I can tell you the answer to that, which is, yes, speaking in tongues is a foreign language, whether it is a known language in the world today, true it didn't say, and I think generally you're not going to find somebody identifying the tongue as a particular language but I haven't heard of that before. A number of other folks are writing in, and John Truitt has replied to a number of these comments, and there have been a a few rounds on restitudio.org, so you can uh, feel free to jump in on that or the the conversation for this episode, either part one or part two, whatever you would like. I did want to let you know that I have a couple of more exciting interviews lined up on this same subject. This is not just going to be a four-part series Uh, I have Pastor Victor Gluckin lined up for next week to present a different view than either John Truitt or Greg Dibble. The idea that God equips different people with different gifts of the Spirit. And then the week after that, I've got Carlos Jimenez of Restoration Fellowship giving his, what he calls, evidentialist point of view on the subject. So stay with us on this series. I think we'll be able to get a number of different voices in here to see what the options are on this interesting and important subject. So uh, stay tuned for that. If you would like to support Restitutio, you can do that at restitutio.org. It's like the word restitution with no N, dot O-R-G. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.